You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Podcast in the Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, November 1st, 2021, people. Hope everybody is having a great week. Hope everybody had a great Halloween weekend. Hope you were the only Ted Lasso at your Halloween party. That's right. I saw a lot of Ted Lassos on social media over the last couple days. Also saw some great Urban Meyer, flirty Urban Meyer videos and pictures and things of that nature. So I hope everybody had a great Halloween weekend. And I do hope. Uh, that you're ready for a loaded episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. So much to get into, so much to discuss, so much to conversate about here on a busy Monday morning. We will obviously start with the game of the day, Michigan-Michigan State. Just another instant classic in this rivalry. And more importantly, talk about Narrative City. Jim Harbaugh, another devastating loss. Mel Tucker, his star continues to rise. Kenneth Walker, his star continues to rise. So we will discuss all of that, what it all means in the bigger picture. From there, I also do think there's some. there was an interesting thing with LSU that I want to talk about with the coaching job. I know we're doing a ton of coaching carousel stuff, but it really is something that I think needs to be addressed here. And then we'll wrap on the rest of the day that was in college football. Ohio State takes care of Penn State holds on. Clemson, weird, weird, weird finish against Florida State. Georgia beats Florida, steamrolls them. And I'll just say this, Nebraska, it really did feel like the end of the Scott Frost era. Don't know when it'll become official, but you lose it to Purdue at home to fall to three and six in year four. I don't know that you're going to get to a year five. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And we know exactly what it was, and it came from the state of Michigan. Michigan at Michigan State, Paul Bunyan's trophy, top 10 matchup, probably the biggest matchup, by the way, in this rivalry, probably in my lifetime. Again, both teams in the top 10, both teams at the top of the Big Ten East standings, great matchup, great game, and unfortunately, we know how it all ended. Michigan's up 30-14, to 14. Michigan's in complete control, Michigan has a chance to make a statement win, Michigan completely falls apart. Michigan loses that 30-14 lead. Final score, 37-33. Let's give a ton of credit to Mel Tucker. Let's give a ton of credit to Kenneth Walker. But at the end of the day, as I often say, the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. And I think in the case of Michigan, there is no doubt that the more interesting story in this game is in the losing locker room. And unfortunately, 
if you're a Michigan fan, you know that it didn't have to be that way. Michigan, I'm not saying that they were elite for all first 30, 35 minutes of this game, but they were in complete control for most of the start of this game. They jump out to a 7-0 lead basically on the first play from scrimmage. Not quite, but you get the point. Up 10-0 after the first quarter. Up 23-14 at halftime. And if you watch the game, you know that there was a very controversial call that could have put them up actually 30-14 at halftime. It was a, a strip sack fumble recovery for a touchdown. It was eventually overturned. Michigan fans would say there wasn't enough video evidence. I tend to agree with them. But even after those points are taken off the board, Michigan's still up by nine points going into halftime and immediately jumps out to a 30 to 14 lead early in the second early in the third quarter. And what I would say is at that point, I know I had the thought, and I know a lot of you had the thought as well. Michigan might actually be pretty good this year. Like, like, like we could criticize Harbaugh for what happened this year and what should have happened that year, and he didn't beat this team, and he hasn't beaten Ohio State. But at the end of the day, they were up 30 to 14 on their in-state rivals on the road. The crowd is silent, and you're sitting there saying, man. They may actually win this game. They may actually be really good this year. Instead, they harbought it. That's right. Go back and watch the tape. But 30-14 to 14 is the lead. Immediately, Michigan State gets the ball, drives the length of the field, goes, uh, cuts the lead to 30-20. to 20. They convert the two-point conversion. And just like that, it's a one-point. It's a one-possession game all of a sudden all over again. From there, we can get into the specifics in a minute, but let me just say, in a lot of ways, I was thinking about this, it actually did remind me a little bit of the Red River shootout a few weeks ago, where you can get into all the specifics, you can break down play by play, minute by minute, what does it all mean, but the final, whatever it was, 15 minutes in the fourth quarter, five, six minutes of the third quarter, so the final 20 to 21 minutes of the game, what it really came down to was, again, it was a lot like the Red River shootout. One team knows how to win games. One team is comfortable in those tight moments. One team isn't. One team squanders it. And if you go back to the Texas, uh, a, uh, the Texas-Oklahoma game, the Red River shootout, I talked about it a lot on this show. If you were watching the game, it was weird. Texas was in complete control. Then all of a sudden, you just start noticing Oklahoma kind of to use a boxing analogy. They're just throwing those little jabs, those little body shots, field goal here, touchdown there, hold them to three and out there, hold them to a field goal there. And all of a sudden, you look up, and Oklahoma is driving with the chance to tie, driving with the chance to take the lead, has the lead, wins the game, and you're like, how did that happen? Only that's exactly what happened in the Oklahoma-Texas game. And in a lot of ways, that was what happened in the Michigan-Michigan State game. One team get got nervous, gets nervous in tight spots. One team played tight down the stretch. One team played like they expected to win the game, expected to make the big plays late, and they did in Michigan State. Now, in terms of the specifics, what I would just say this. I really do think it ultimately came down to one play late in the game. And it's really interesting because you could start to feel the momentum turn after that uh, touchdown to make it 30-14, to 14, but then after Michigan State immediately scored and immediately went for two and cut it to 30-22. to 22. At the same time, Michigan State ultimately tied it up at 30-30, to 30, and there was one glimmer of time where Michigan actually regained the momentum in the game. If you remember... They kick a field goal to go up 33-30, to 30, and even that was kind of lucky because they had freshman quarterback J.J. McCarthy in. He fumbles. The ball gets kicked out of bounds. They're able to, to kick the field goal to go up 33-30. to 30. And then at that point, the defense, which is starting to get gassed, you can start to see the offensive line leaning on that Michigan defensive front. You can start to see Kenneth Walker breaking off bigger and bigger and bigger plays. All of a sudden, Michigan's defense conjures up a three and out. 
Michigan gets the ball back. They're in complete control, up 33-30, to and what happens? J.J. McCarthy is in as the backup quarterback to Cade McNamara. He fumbles. Michigan State recovers. Michigan State scores seven plays later, and the ball game is essentially over. Now, what I will say is a couple things. One, in terms of the play itself, Jim Harbaugh said after the game that Cade McNamara was not able to play in that particular moment, that he had some kind of weird injury, that he was nursing it, and that is why J.J. McCarthy was ultimately in that game. What I will tell you is, I know people who were at the game, nobody saw anything going on with J.J. McCarthy. Not saying it didn't happen, just saying I, I, nobody can confirm it except for Jim Harbaugh. Uh, Cade McNamara was in the series before, Cade McNamara was in the series after, and ultimately it did not matter because J.J. McCarthy was in. Many people believe that Harbaugh is finding ways to play him because he's afraid that he's going to transfer. But regardless, even if Cade McNamara was hurt, freshman quarterback, fumbled on the previous play you cannot make that mistake in that moment but again it is a metaphor for Michigan football it is a metaphor for Jim Harbaugh and although Michigan got two more possessions after that although they had two more chances to score and take the lead that was the play that I believe ultimately sealed the game and it did in theory seal the game because Michigan State scored the game winning touchdown immediately after that if Michigan can just chew some time off the clock even if they don't fumble and then punt, and then make Michigan State go the length of the field, get your defense some rest, I believe they could have won that game. Instead, we'll never know as Michigan State wins 37-33. Now, in terms of the bigger picture, let's talk about that because that, to me, is the more interesting stuff, right? Like, the one thing that we do well on this show, I believe, is we, we, we contextualize everything that happens. Yes, I just spent five, six minutes talking about the game itself, what went wrong, what went right. That's kind of boring. Anybody can do that, and so now it's time to talk about the bigger picture. And we'll get to Michigan State in a second because Mel Tucker deserves a heap of praise. We deserve to throw roses at his feet. He deserves a massive uh, salary increase, whether it's from Michigan State, from LSU, from somebody else. And Kenneth Walker deserves all the credit as well. But as I often say, the more interesting storyline is in the losing locker room, and I don't think there's a more interesting story right now in college football than Jim Harbaugh in Michigan because we're going to break down the stats in a minute. We're going to break it all down. But at the end of the day, this just reaffirms something that I have been talking about on this show for years. And it, became, it came to fruition once again yesterday afternoon, Saturday afternoon in East Lansing, Michigan. I like Jim Harbaugh. I've defended Jim Harbaugh. I think he elevated this program to a level that it was not at before he got there, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But what is indisputable at this point with Jim Harbaugh is that this program will always be good under Jim Harbaugh. It will never be elite under Jim Harbaugh. And that is the most frustrating thing that a fan base can deal with. And it is going to lead to some very tough questions over these next couple weeks and months as it pertains to Michigan football. First of all, there are the facts. There are the stats. They are indisputable. Michigan is now under Jim Harbaugh. Check this out. They are now 2-13 and 13 against top 10 teams under Jim Harbaugh. So the narrative changes a little bit when he takes a massive pay cut this year. But at the end of the day, let's never forget, he was brought into Michigan to beat Ohio State, to win the Big Ten, to go to college football playoffs. And not only has he not done that, he can't beat the elite teams. 2-13 and 13 overall against top 10 teams. On top of that, he is now 3-9 and nine against Michigan State and Ohio State, his two biggest rivals in college football at Michigan. If you do nothing else as the Michigan State coach, you got to beat little brother Michigan State. He's now 3-4 and four against them. 
you at least have to compete and every once in a while beat Ohio State. He is now 0-5 against them and would have been 0-6 had they played last year. Remember, that game was not played. Look at the schedule this year. What is going to happen? The same exact thing that happened that has happened at Michigan every single year under Jim Harbaugh. They are going to be really good at the end of the year. They are going to have a nice record. I suspect that they will probably finish with at least nine regular season wins, maybe ten if they win at Michigan at Penn State. But they didn't beat Michigan State. They didn't beat Ohio State. They're not going to beat Ohio State, excuse me. The two best teams on their schedule, their two biggest rivals, and we are going to once again have the most unfulfilling ending to a Jim Harbaugh season ever where he finishes 10-2 and and beats nobody of consequence. And so because of that, it puts Michigan in the most precarious situation possible when it comes to being a major college football program. And let me step away. Let me talk very briefly about another sport. But in the NBA, we always say, either want to be really good or really bad. You want to be really good, have that Kevin Durant, LeBron James, whatever type superstar, or you want to be really bad so you can hope to draft that kind of player in the NBA draft and develop them. Where you don't want to be is 40 and 42 or 42 and 40 in an 80-game regular season, 82-game regular season, excuse me, and be the seventh seed in the playoffs and get steamrolled by LeBron. It is the most unfulfilling, unsatisfying thing possible, and Michigan has essentially become that under Jim Harbaugh, okay? Let me take you through it. I, I share these stats all the time, but they always are worth considering when it comes to Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh is now in year seven at Michigan, okay? Let's go ahead and take out the COVID year last year because COVID was just a bizarre deal. Nobody can really, it was just insane. It was just very weird. It was very strange. Let's take out the COVID year. Here is Jim Harbaugh's record at Michigan as the head coach of Michigan. 10 and 3 in his first year. 10 and 3 in his second year. 8 and 5 in his third year. 10 and 3 in his fourth year. 9 and 4 in his fifth year. Last year was COVID. He is 7 and 1 this year. Is probably at worst going to finish 9 and 3. I think he will get to 10 and 2 and beat Penn State. So we are now looking at year 7, take out COVID, so 6 seasons. He will have Four 10-win seasons, five nine-win seasons, and eight, or, or five nine-win seasons, and six eight-win seasons. You can argue a lot of things. What you cannot argue is that Jim Harbaugh is having success at Michigan that almost any other program in college football would trade. You take what he has done from 2015 to 2021, ask yourself, would Texas trade what Jim Harbaugh has done for what they have done over that stretch? They would. Would Florida State, who has had about 5 billion coaches over that stretch, trade what Jim Harbaugh has done over that stretch? Yes, they would. Would, I don't know, um, USC, I know they would. Would Oklahoma State, I mean, you go on and on and on down the list, would, I, I can't even think of teams off the top of my head, but you start to think about the teams that would trade what Jim Harbaugh has done from 2015 to 2021, there are a lot of them. And what is also fascinating to think about is that it's easy to say Michigan is this great historical program. They were a complete dumpster fire before he got there. Here is the record of the in the seven seasons prior to Harbaugh getting there. They are now, set, of course, in year seven. This was the Rich Rod era, three and nine, five and seven, seven and six. Brady Hoke, 11 and two, eight and five, seven and six, five and seven. So Jim Harbaugh has now been there seven years, okay? Let's assume he gets to 10 wins this year. That will be four 10-win seasons for Jim Harbaugh in seven years. And that includes a COVID year, by the way, that was a disaster. 
The previous seven years before Jim Harbaugh got there, they won 10 games one time. The previous seven years before Jim Harbaugh got there, they won eight games twice in seven years. Jim Harbaugh will have done it six in seven years. And so why this is so interesting is because I don't know what you do if you're a Michigan fan. On the one hand, you never want to lose to your rivals in any sport. It doesn't matter. Um, You know, I'm a UConn basketball fan. I don't care what the circumstance is. When we used to play, you don't want to lose to Syracuse. You don't want to be embarrassed by Syracuse. I don't care if we go fight. If we beat Syracuse and punk them at the Dome, that's all that matters. And I know you guys are fans yourselves, and I know you guys feel the same way. Auburn fans, yeah, you want to go 11-1 and and make the playoff. But if we beat Bama, we're feeling awfully good going into the offseason. Kentucky fans, historic year we're in the middle of. I know it was a tough loss to Mississippi State. Can still get to 10-2. and can't lose to Louisville. Cannot lose to Louisville. That was when John Calipari last year uh, in basketball, I know I'm going from football to basketball now, but that was when John Calipari, that was when he really started. You, you can lose a lot of games. You can't lose to Louisville. And so if you're Michigan, yeah, you're frustrated because the games that matter, Harbaugh just can't win. But at the same time, are you really going to fire a coach? Are you really going to force a coach out that is winning 10 games every single season? Because I'll tell you this, We talk a lot of coaching carousel on this show. I don't think there is an obvious great replacement for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. I don't think there's an obvious great replacement that the second that you you get rid of Jim Harbaugh is a coach that will immediately take the job and from there not only immediately take the job but immediately get Michigan to where Ohio State is right now. Immediately get Michigan into college football playoff contention year in and year out. I'm just telling you, I don't think that candidate exists. Listen, Let's go through the candidates really quick. Logical people for Michigan, okay? Let's take out Urban Meyer. Let's take out, uh, you know, James Franklin, who's obviously a hot candidate at other places. James Franklin's not leaving Penn State for Michigan. Think about it. First of all, I don't think Luke Fickle's coming. I don't think Luke Fickle's coming. I know he wants – He, I, I do think eventually he will leave Cincinnati. But I think he's hold, holding out for one, two, maybe three jobs. Ohio State, Notre Dame, maybe Penn State. And I also think just his Ohio State roots, I don't think he's going to take the Michigan job. Now, I know he wants a big job specifically in the Midwest, and that is the job that he will leave Cincinnati for. I don't know if Michigan is it. Bob Stoops ain't coming back to college to coach at Michigan. Because if Bob Stoops wants to come back, he could probably get LSU. He could probably get USC. Same with Chris Peterson. So then you start getting through the the, the elite coaches that are going to make a difference. Matt Campbell, by the way, would have been a great hire last year. He's going to be 7-5 and five with the best team he's ever going to have at Iowa State. Is that the guy that's going to rally the fan base and, more importantly, build a program that can beat Ohio State? Because he, he can't even build a program that can beat Oklahoma State right now. And so it is such a precarious situation, and it is so interesting at Michigan. Because on the one hand, you have seen in recent history what happens. First of all, let me even backtrack. On the one hand, you could sit there and say, we, not, we haven't beaten Ohio State. We can't beat Michigan State. we got to get rid of this guy. And if that is your argument, I cannot really argue it. I cannot really fight you on that. But what I would also say is Michigan also in recent history knows exactly what it's like to think, to have a very, very, very successful coach and to think it's only going to get better when you fire him and then you had a decade of misery. You had seven years of Rich Rod, Brady Hoke, bleh, before Jim Harbaugh came in and started winning 10 games a year. On the other hand, a lot of people say, well, that's a losing mentality. So you're accepting second place from now until the end of time. 
it's not that I'm accepting second place. What I am saying, though, is there are a lot of programs, and we know who they are. You get rid of a coach, you force a coach out, you're happy when a coach leaves, assuming that the next guy is going to be better. When Phil Former left Tennessee, what's Tennessee been like since then? When Mac Brown left Texas, what has Texas been like since then? Heck, I'll take it a step further. Bo Pelini at Nebraska, you go back and look at the record, really wasn't that bad. Lloyd Carr at Michigan wasn't that bad. And so Michigan has a recent track record, and people say, that's a losing mentality, so you're just going to take second place forever. I'm just telling you, the bottom line is, it could be better than Harbaugh, but there are a lot of guys that can be a lot worse, and we have seen it in the not-too-distant past. And so because of it, I don't know what the answer is because I don't believe there's a great candidate, and I don't know what you do next. Do you keep the coach that consistently wins 10 games, that consistently beats the teams that they're supposed to, that consistently, at the very least, doesn't embarrass you against Rutgers and Maryland and Northwestern and Minnesota and Purdue, but can't beat Ohio State and Michigan State? Or do you, do, do you find a way to get him out the side door and get somebody else to, to bring in? And I would say this, too, with Harbaugh. Last little thought. We'll talk a little Mel Tucker, a little Kenneth Walker. Um, we are now at the point with Harbaugh where, like, like it's indisputable. And, and, and I know I talked about it year seven, all that stuff. But it, it's starting to feel a little Coach O-ish where Coach O, if you remember, when he got fired, what was the conversation? Won the national championship, changed coordinators multiple times, had multiple quarterbacks, had multiple this, had multiple that. And at a certain point, there's only so many fingers you can point. Well, Jim Harbaugh is shaking up his staff two, three times now. He's got the young staff in. I know we're reacting to one loss, but I don't know what to do because this does not look like a team that, based on what we just saw, is going to be ready to beat Ohio State. And Ohio State didn't even look that great on Saturday night against Penn State. But you don't beat Ohio State. Like, like, where are we at at the end of this year with Michigan? It is just absolutely fascinating. They got to rally. They got to get ready. They play Indiana this weekend. That should, in theory, be a win. I would hope it'd be a win. And maybe you win and you get back on track and everybody starts to feel good about themselves again. But I am just telling you, you finish 10-2, and two, you beat a barely top 25 Penn State team that's going to finish 7-5. and five. And nobody else of consequence... I just don't know what Michigan does because I don't think that there is a better obvious candidate. And one last thought, I swear, I keep saying last thought. But, oh, by the way, do you really want to enter a coaching cycle where both USC and LSU are looking for coaches as well? Just keep an eye on this, man. This is just a fascinating, fascinating story in college football. All right, before we switch gears, uh, I, I do think we need to talk a little bit about Michigan State. And, and it's interesting, right? I, I say this all the time, a couple things. I, I know I just said it a minute ago. Oftentimes, the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. And I ultimately do have to address what you guys want to talk about on a show like this. I said it a few episodes ago. I don't pick the topics on this show. You guys do. And let's be honest, another Harbaugh meltdown in another big game, in a game that all of you were watching, is much more interesting than just talking about, oh, look at Michigan State, they're incredible, they're such a great story. But at the same time, we shouldn't let this Michigan State story pass without acknowledging it as well. Because another thing that I've talked about a lot on this show is that too often people in the media, and I absolutely include myself on this one, too often us in the media, we focus on the big picture, the the, the, the 30,000 foot stuff. The college football playoff race. Where does this team fit in? What does this loss mean? All that good stuff. We talk about coaching carousel. That sometimes we lose the topics. We lose what makes college football great, which is the stories 
that kind of come out of nowhere. And I talked about it a few weeks ago with Mark Stoops on this show in Kentucky. And I know it's weird to talk a little bit about Kentucky after they just lost to Mississippi State, but what I said was after Kentucky beat Florida, after they beat LSU, I said, don't let this moment in time pass where we appreciate what Mark Stoops has done at Kentucky. Because I don't think Kentucky's going to make the college football playoff. I don't think they're going to win a national championship. But it doesn't mean that what Mark Stoops has done at Kentucky isn't in some ways as incredible as what fill-in-the-blank coach has done at fill-in-the-blank school. And it's the same with Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker, what he has done at Michigan State, I don't know if they're going to beat Ohio State. I don't know if they're going to win the Big Ten. I don't know if they're going to compete for a playoff berth or a national championship. But what he has done in such a short amount of time should not go underappreciated. And if they do suffer another loss or two in the next few weeks, I don't want to have missed this opportunity to just acknowledge everything that this guy has done in such a short amount of time. First of all, to understand where Michigan State is now, we do have to go back and kind of think about um, just how far this program has come and how far it had fallen in the final days of Mark D'Antonio. And Mark D'Antonio is kind of one of those classic things that I always talk about. Two things can be true. He took this program to unprecedented heights. He is the reason that little brother is no longer little brother. I joked the other day, but I said, if, little, if we're still calling Michigan State little brother, then we got to acknowledge that little brother had a huge growth spurt this summer and is now beating big brother's butt pretty regularly every time they pay, play pickup basketball in the driveway. So Mark D'Antonio did an incredible job building this program. He also left this program in about as embarrassing a way as he possibly could have. He left in February 2020 right after signing day, and right after he got a big contract bonus. It was bad. It was bad optics. It was clear that a guy, uh, all these coaches say, oh, it's about the kids. It's about the families. We're a family. Well, this guy screwed over those 85 guys in the locker room, and it was a complete disaster when Mel Tucker took over. He comes in. He's trying to build his culture, and what happens? Immediately, the world shuts down for COVID. He has no face-to-face contact with his team. He has no chance to work with them in spring practice. Obviously, a very limited fall camp with all the COVID stuff and Mich- uh, the Big Ten not even playing games until the last week of October last year. And so think about how far this program has come now, where they are now 8-0 and and very much in the driver's seat going forward and frankly control their own destiny in the Big Ten race, national championship race, playoff race, all that stuff. Again, do I think they're going to beat Ohio State? I don't necessarily feel that. But do they control their own destiny? They do, and it's for a few different reasons that I want to acknowledge. First of all, going back to Saturday's game, one thing stood out to me more than anything else. Two things, really. First of all, they were the more confident team late. And that, to me, is incredible. This is a team that last year in Mel Tucker's first year as the Michigan State head coach was not very good. Now, they did beat Michigan. Now, they did beat Michigan. Don't know if you remember that game. But in Mel Tucker's first year as head coach at Michigan State, this was a team that went 2-5 and five overall. They finished last in the Big Ten East standings. This was a program that obviously we know reinvigorated itself through the transfer portal, but there is no reason that a program that was disappointing for two, three, four years before Mel Tucker got there went 2-5 and five last year that they should be the team that's more confident, that feels like they're going to find a way to win late, only that is the confidence that Mel Tucker has instilled in this program. And oh, by the way, it is also a credit to the players that have bought into the culture. What I would say on top of that, the thing that stood out to me that I kind of just talked about a minute ago from the Michigan perspective, Michigan State was the more physically dominating team late in that game. And you can criticize Jim Harbaugh, going back to Harbaugh for a second, for a lot of stuff. But through the years, the one thing that Harbaugh's team has never lacked is a physical toughness, a physical aggressiveness. 
and that was what Michigan State had late in the game. Late in the game, that O-line was leaning on the Michigan front and opening up huge holes for Kenneth Walker. We're going to get to Kenneth Walker in a minute, but we should not underappreciate what the O-line did in this game, just physically controlling the line of scrimmage, physically beating up Michigan late. And then finally, there's a little bit of Kenneth Walker. And I'll say this. We got a lot of time left in the Heisman race. We got a lot of weeks left. Bryce Young could make a run. Uh, Kenny Pickett could get back into the conversation, although I don't know if he will. Maybe C.J. Stroud, maybe Travion Henderson. I don't know at Ohio State. But you start talking about guys, Caleb Williams, by the way. You start talking about guys that it's hard to see the scenario they don't end up in New York. Kenneth Walker is one of them, okay? You start looking at stats across college football on a day like today, there aren't very many players that are having a bigger impact in college football than Kenneth Walker. And one thing that I would say is a couple things. One, statistically, he has the numbers to back things up. Obviously, having a phenomenal year at Michigan State currently leads the country in rushing yards per game at 149 yards per game. Second nationally in rushing with 1,194 yards behind only Sean Tucker at Syracuse. Sean Tucker's played an extra game, by the way. And so, one, he has the stats to back it up. Two, like I said, Heisman voters are always looking for a good story. Doesn't get much better of a story than Kenneth Walker. What I would also say, by the way, when it comes to Kenneth Walker, he is a transfer. And this is further proof for people like Dabo Swinney that are convinced that the transfer portal is evil. There are good reasons to transfer. Kenneth Walker had a successful career at Wake Forest, but he did not feel like the system best emphasized his skill set and what he did, decides to take a chance on himself and goes to Michigan State. So ultimately, I don't know if he's going to end up winning the Heisman, but it's hard to see the scenario unless Michigan State completely falls apart down the stretch that he will not at least be in New York and deservedly so. Obviously, there's some Mel Tucker conversation. I want to save that because what I would say is over the last couple days, I've thought a lot about the LSU job, and I do believe that Mel Tucker is one of two guys that should be and is rising in that coaching conversation. From there, I will tell you about two guys that I think are falling. I have a very interesting thought on a coach that people are actually not talking about, and I think they need to. So that's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk a little LSU coaching search. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I actually do want to talk a little bit about the LSU coaching search. And it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of you are probably sitting there saying, Torres, why more LSU? There is nothing new that has happened over the last couple days. And what I would tell you is, in many ways, that's fair. Coach O gets fired two weeks ago. We get that initial wave of candidates. And really, since Mike Tomlin took the podium, yelled and screamed, never say never, but never. There is not a check big enough to write that you can write me boosters. There really hasn't been all that much news in either coaching search. But what I also think is true also is that over the course of this past weekend, I actually saw a couple guys really start to emerge in this process, really start to kind of uh, take a step forward. I also saw a few guys take a step back. And so it doesn't mean that other guys can't move up and down the list. It doesn't mean the guys that are coaching well now can't lose a game or two and fall down. It doesn't even mean that the guys that are emerging are necessarily favorites for the job. But I always think it's good to take a temperature gauge on a job as big as LSU, especially after a Saturday with as many important results as we got. In terms of the guys that I thought took a step back, Look, I talked about him a lot last week. I don't want to spend too much time on him, but James Franklin's the first one. I, I said it last week after the Illinois loss, 
at some point you got to start winning games, James Franklin, if you want to get out of Happy Valley and get one of these premier coaching jobs. And so with James Franklin right now, he's in a very precarious situation. In many ways, I actually feel bad for him because I think it's becoming increasingly clear that if Sean Clifford did not get hurt against Iowa, they win that game, which means that they probably beat Illinois as well, which means that they go into the game against Ohio State at 7-0. and And instead of uh, potentially now sitting at 5-3, and they could be 7-1 and and still very much in the thick of the playoff race. But Sean Clifford did get hurt. They did lose to Iowa, Illinois. And now I look at, at James Franklin's situation. I say it is going to be increasingly hard to sell James Franklin as a home run type hire as the next head coach, either frankly at LSU or USC. Now, in this case, we're more specifically talking about LSU, but I think it applies to USC as well. Look, James Franklin is a very accomplished coach. I actually give him credit. I think because he hasn't had that one huge season, because he hasn't made the college football playoff, I think that increasingly we don't appreciate everything that he has done at Ohio State or at Penn State in a division where he has to face Urban Meyer, Ryan Day, and Ohio State every year. I've already talked about his credentials. I've already talked about his resume. But again, I did it with Harbaugh earlier. Take out the COVID year last year. Three of the previous four years, they had won 11 games. Nine-plus wins from 2016 to 2019, 11 wins in three of those seasons. And though I think, so I think what he has done is really incredible. At the same time, he is currently 5-3. and three. He just lost to an unranked bad Illinois team at home. And with Michigan and Michigan State still left on the schedule, I think at best we are looking at an 8-4 and four type situation. And I think as critical as we are of Harbaugh, I do think 7-5 and five is absolutely on the table. And if 7-5 and five ends up happening, even 8-4, and four, I just think that's a really tough sell to the fan bases at LSU and USC. At LSU, it's going to be hard to sell that you're competing, that you're going to bring in a guy that is going to compete with and topple Nick Saban that couldn't topple Brett Bielema earlier this year and that just finished 7-5 and five or, again, maybe 8-4 and four in a best-case scenario. At USC, I think it's a little bit different because I think the conference, I think there's a lot of variables that are a little bit different, but I think there's some things that work against him at USC as well. I talked about it last week with James Franklin. You look at USC, part of the job, part of the hire is going to have to be a coach that creates buzz and wants to create an interest in fans to rush to the window and sell tickets. Right now, USC is not in a very good place, and unlike these great SEC fan bases at LSU and Georgia and Florida and Kentucky and Alabama, People in L.A. are not going to show up to watch a bad football team, and even hiring a new coach isn't going to immediately inspire people to purchase tickets. They need to be sold. They need to be convinced. Now, a big, big, big-name coach like hypothetically Mike Tomlin, that might do it. I don't know if James Franklin at 7-5 and five will. Back to LSU specifically, the second guy that I think hurt himself a little bit this week is Lane Kiffin. And look, this is not because Lane Kiffin lost to a good Auburn team. And in many ways, I do think Lane Kiffin deserves some credit because he has a a young team, a team that certainly doesn't have the depth of the Alabamas, LSUs, Georgias, etc. He has them playing really hard when they are just hemorrhaging bodies right now, week after week after week. They're losing guys to injuries, and they just don't have the bodies to replace them. And so to me, it's not that Lane Kiffin lost to Auburn. The problem is what happened. And what happened is exactly what I've been saying on this podcast, not only for the last couple weeks, but dating back to last year. I've been critical of Lane Kiffin because I think he makes a lot of really dumb decisions in game and he blames it on the analytics. Oh, the analytics said I had to do this. The analytics. I go back to the Alabama game. 
I told you, I said, I don't think that Ole Miss was clearly an inferior team to Alabama, but Lane Kiffin coached his team out of the game by going for for, for it on, on fourth down, converting none of the first three attempts, giving Alabama 21 points in the making. I mean, he did it in Alabama territory, or in his own territory, excuse me. Alabama has a short field. They go up 21-0, the game's over. Well, did you see what happened at Auburn on Saturday night? Gave up three field goal opportunities to instead go for it on fourth down. He converted none of them, one for four overall on fourth down, and left at least nine points on the field. I'm not saying that means that you win, but all of a sudden, maybe it changes the dynamic if you kick a field goal or two. And to me, I think that it is a metaphor. I think it is a metaphor for who Lane Kiffin is. He is a great play caller. He is a great offensive coach, but he's still in big moments doesn't always make the smartest decisions. That was his problem at USC. He was under a microscope there, made a lot of really dumb decisions when he was at USC that ultimately led to not just the win-loss record, him being fired, but also all the other stuff that came with it. I think you can get away with a lot of this stuff at Ole Miss. I don't know that you can get away with it at LSU under the microscope that is a top five job in college football. Not saying Lane Kiffin can't coach his way back into the conversation. Not saying he's maybe not even at the top of Scott Woodward's list right now. But what I am saying is I would be nervous if I was Scott Woodward to hire this guy because, again, he makes weird decisions the worst possible time. It still reeks of immaturity. And the one thing you cannot be in a job as high profile as LSU is immature. You can be a jerk like Nick Saban. You can be standoffish like Kirby Smart is some of the times. You can't be immature, and that's what I see in Lane Kiffin. Now, in terms of the guys that I think actually helped their status quite a bit over over the last couple of days, let's get into them because I think there are a few names that have kind of been bandied about, one of them more so than the other. But I think the other one, the second one that I'm going to talk about is a guy that I, I think we got to keep, start keeping a real eye on. And so the two guys that I believe have helped their cause over the last couple of days, first one's obviously Mel Tucker, right? It, it goes without saying, you don't need me to read Mel Tucker's credentials or his bona fides because of what I just said. Now... Beats Michigan, 8-0, ranked in the top five, and has done one of the incredible rebuilding jobs in major college football. This is also why he is a candidate for the job in the first place. If he can flip Michigan State in one offseason, it's crazy to think about what he could potentially do at LSU. And so you don't need me to tell you why Mel Tucker continues to ascend or should continue to ascend in these LSU coaching rankings, but what I would also tell you is this. I am hearing increasingly that it might not be as, as much of a done deal that if Mel Tucker gets offered this job that he would absolutely take it. Now, I know he left Colorado after a year. I understand that. This is a little bit of a different deal. Colorado doubled his salary, or, or Michigan State doubled his salary, huge assistant pool, all that good stuff. And so when I look at the Mel Tucker stuff, let me tell you what I know right now here on November 1st, 2021. I will tell you straight up point blank. I have a couple really good sources in the state of Michigan. I'm not saying I know everything that's going down at Michigan State, at Michigan, but what I am telling you is I have some maybe inside information that a lot of other people don't have uh, because I just am fortunate enough to have some contacts. Again, not claiming I'm Bruce Feldman, not claiming I'm uh, John Rothstein or Jeff Goodman. What I am just saying is I do believe I have some information that's interesting. First of all, what I can definitively tell you about Mel Tucker and LSU, money will not be the deciding factor. There is no dollar amount that LSU can offer Mel Tucker that Michigan State cannot match. Never forget, it is not the SEC right now that currently has the biggest TV deal in college sports. It is the Big Ten. 
The Big Ten makes more money off of TV than any conference in major college sports. And on top of that, Michigan State's got themselves some big-time boosters. Dan Gilbert, maybe you've heard of him, uh, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He is a Michigan State alum. If you were watching the game on Saturday, he owns a company called Rocket Mortgage. That, that signage was plastered all over Spartan Stadium. I don't know how much he gives to the program, but it is a lot of money. What I would also say on top of that, there's another booster, by the way, that just cut a check. Uh, you can Google this, but back in September when NIL got rolling, every football player, every men's basketball player, every women's basketball player now gets $500 a month from one booster as part of an NIL program. So this guy is raking in cash. And so if LSU wants to offer Mel Tucker $8 million a year, $9 million a year, whatever it would be, Michigan State can match them. Now, it, could, could we get to some astronomical number? Maybe, but there is really no realistic number outside of if, if, if LSU wants to offer $15 million a year, which I don't think they're going to do, that Mel Tucker, that they cannot match. It's also worth noting, by the way, in terms of the Michigan State dynamic at, with Mel Tucker, keep this in mind as well. Always in these AD or all in these coaching searches, the relationship between the head coach and the AD matters. That's why sometimes uh, you see a scenario like Jimbo Fisher at Florida State. It was clear that there was a disconnect with his AD. He decides to go work for Scott Woodward at Texas A&M, and that was what ultimately got him there. Texas A&M obviously offered him more money, more resources, but there was also friction between him and the athletic department. Mel Tucker actually helped hire this AD that is currently at Michigan State, and so because of it, I just look at this scenario, and I do not really see the scenario in which Mel Tucker is rushing out the door. Now, maybe ultimately he loses a couple bad games late. Maybe he loses to Ohio State by 30 and Penn State by 20, and he just realizes uh, the ceiling at Michigan State isn't what it was. But what I would tell you is, first of all, keep in mind the changing dynamic of the Big Ten East. We don't know how, how uh, Harbaugh is on thin ice. We know that. James Franklin is trying to get out. Ryan Day is going to be pursued by the NFL every single year. And so there is a possibility that Mel Tucker looks at this thing and says, do I want to go beat my head against the wall against Saban when I'm already probably the second best team in the Big Ten, in the Big Ten East? And oh, by the way, we might have an expanded college football playoff here in a few years. I don't even need to win the Big Ten to get in. The second name that I believe has really emerged, and this is what I want to talk about because I think it's really interesting. He's been mentioned. I don't think he's being mentioned enough is Dave Aranda, the head coach at Baylor. And so it's really interesting because Dave Aranda, head coach at Baylor, prior to being the head coach at Baylor, I think most of you know where he was. But he was the defensive coordinator at LSU for the 2019 National Championship team. And I think we spend so much time talking about Joe Burrow, Joe Brady, that we don't appreciate what Dave Aranda did as the defensive coordinator that year during the National Championship season. They played at Texas with Sam Ellinger. They played Oklahoma with Jalen Hurts. They played Clemson with Trevor Lawrence. They played Georgia in the SEC championship game. They played Florida with Kyle Trask. That defense, for the most part, did a pretty good job holding up, especially relative to how quickly the offense scored and how much the defense stayed on the field. So one, he has a recent track record at the school. Two, it's worth noting, he's awesome at Baylor. And this is kind of a story that's going a little bit underappreciated. The Big 12 is a little bit more off people's radar. But Dave Aranda just beat Texas pretty convincingly in year two. Baylor is now 7-1. and one, And there are a lot of parallels between what is happening between Mel Tucker and Dave Aranda at their respective schools. Both coaches come in as first-year head coaches last year. COVID hits. 
It takes a while to get things figured out. First year is kind of a waste. It doesn't really work out. Now Dave Aranda's got things rocking and rolling. What I would also say, he is a calming presence, a mature presence that LSU needs. I talked a little bit a minute ago about Lane Kiffin's immaturity. This guy is mature. If you remember, I talked about it at one point on this show. I can't remember when. But Dave Aranda, during that national championship run, he was kind of seen as the good cop to Coach O's bad cop. In other words, Coach O's the, the gruff yell, scream, this, that. Dave Aranda was kind of the guy that throws his arm around a, a kid's shoulder and let, lets him know it's going to be okay, stay calm, all that stuff. And part of the problem, when he left, the culture in the program started to erode. I use this analogy. It reminds me of when Charlie Strong was the lead assistant defensive coordinator under Urban Meyer at Florida State. Charlie Strong leaves, the program falls apart. There are a lot of parallels there. On top of that, Dave Aranda, he's winning. He would have support of the former players. Now, obviously, you would need to go out and hire an elite offensive coordinator, but it's also worth noting if you hire Lane Kiffin, you got to go find yourself an elite defensive coordinator. So I don't think that's the be-all, end-all. And what I would finally say on Dave Aranda is this. And I think this is kind of important. I believe that right now, now he could lose the next four games and finish seven and five, and he's completely off the table by December 1st. I believe he is the best candidate that you know you will get a yes from. And you, like, like that, that matters. And I don't know why I, I, I pause there for dramatic effect. He is the best coach that you know you will get a yes from, and that matters. Okay, let me give you a, a very abstract example um, that most of you probably won't even understand because it's a college basketball reference. But I remember the summer, do you remember the summer that Thad Mata retired at Ohio State? I don't know if you remember that, but it was the end of the summer. I think it was in the middle of June, actually, so maybe beginning of summer, whatever. And Thad Mata is just having all these physical issues, and it's clear that he can't do the job anymore. And so it's not often that a job opens up that time of year, but I was at foxsports.com at the time. And I was asked to put together a list of coaching candidates and, uh, you know, talk to a few people, all that good stuff. But what was interesting about that was when you when you started kind of putting together the candidates, it was an interesting list because um, there were some candidates that made more sense, but you didn't know that you would get a yes from. And I remember I remember Chris Mack was rolling at Xavier. I said, Chris Mack's probably the best guy you can get. I don't know if he says yes. There were other guys, I can't remember everybody, I think Fred Hoiberg may have been in the mix at that point, but I bring it up to say that I remember writing, or, or thinking at least, I don't even know if the article is still online, It got Chris Holtman was probably the second, third, fourth choice, but he was kind of that line where you knew he was at Butler, he's making a certain amount of money, Ohio State can give him things that Butler can't, and he's the first guy that you know will say yes, and he ultimately ended up being the head coach at Ohio State, and they've been really good since. I think Dave Aranda is the best coach that you know you will get a yes from if the job was offered. Think Lane Kiffin would take it if he was offered. Don't really know, though, if he will be offered. And I do think there's a scenario where he says, you know what, I'm building something in Ole Miss. There might be a time to leave, but it's not right now. I can see this, this scenario where Mel Tucker says, I'm good, I'm staying, money's not an issue, like what I'm building, I'm staying. Um, Jimbo Fisher, obviously, Dabo Sweeney, obviously, Mike Tomlin, obviously, those are guys that could very easily say yes, if they have not officially already like Mike Tomlin, Dave Aranda is the best first coach, the first best coach that I believe would absolutely say yes. And I do believe that matters. One other note on the LSU coaching search, by the way, this is me totally projecting, but I saw something interesting over the weekend that I, I do want to share. So Billy Napier is at Louisiana Lafayette. Don't call them Louisiana Lafayette. They're Louisiana. If you remember, 
ranked in the preseason top 25. They lose to Texas week one, and we kind of forget about them. Well, Louisiana is now 7-1, and one, and Billy Napier is rolling as the head coach at Louisiana Lafayette. I'm just going to call him Louisiana Lafayette, even though they don't like that. Here is what he has done over the last couple years. Year one, he struggled 7-7. Seven and seven. Year two, 2019, 11-3. Last year in COVID, 10-1. This year, he has... Louisiana at 7-1. and one. The only loss was to the aforementioned Texas Longhorns on the opening day at Darrell Royal Stadium. So why am I bringing up Billy Napier? A couple reasons. First of all, Billy Napier has turned down a lot of second-tier jobs in the SEC and in college football. There was reports that he interviewed last year at South Carolina, then pulled his name out of the running. There were reports that he interviewed at Mississippi State at one point, but, but, or there was at least interest in interviewing him, and he said thanks, but no thanks. That there was talks with him in Auburn, but he said thanks and no thanks. And the thought was always that Billy Napier is waiting for one of these elite of the elite of the elite jobs for an LSU to open, for a Florida to open, for Clemson, where he previously coached, maybe to open, for Alabama to previously open. I saw him linked to Virginia Tech earlier this week, which on the surface isn't an elite job, but in the ACC, Clemson's trending down. Virginia Tech, you can build that team into a playoff contender, okay? So why am I bringing up Billy Napier? One, it would make sense that he'd be interested in the LSU job after he's basically shown no interest in the South Carolina, Mississippi State level jobs. Here's another reason, though. He doesn't do very much media, and I saw this week that he did a radio interview with a guy named Jordy Collada in Baton Rouge. And I know Jordy a little bit. I wouldn't say I'm like super close with him or anything, but he's a very talented radio host, very successful, does his own thing on radio, YouTube. He's a monster in Baton Rouge, okay? And so what I want you to think about is this. Billy Napier doesn't do very many media availabilities. Why would he go on in Baton Rouge in the middle of the season if he wasn't interested in LSU. Now, maybe he, I haven't talked to Jordy. I don't know, I don't know Jordy well enough to ask him. I don't want to bother him. I don't want him to think that I'm trying to get information from him. But in my head, if I'm Billy Napier and I have no interest in the LSU job, I know he's in the state of Louisiana. I, I don't know that it makes sense that I am trying to get on air in Baton Rouge because ultimately, isn't that what coaches hate? Isn't that a distraction? Isn't it at the next media availability saying, hey, coach, we heard you on in Baton Rouge. What'd you, th- what'd you think? What do you, what, do you, what do you know about Baton Rouge? To me, what this reeks of is Billy Napier saying, I need to get the word out. I need Baton Rouge to know a little bit about Billy Napier. I need Baton Rouge to know a little bit about what I'm doing down there in Louisiana Lafayette. I need Baton Rouge to know, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm the guy that you would want to lead your program if the opportunity presents itself. Again, me speculating. Haven't talked to anybody. I'm just saying. I find it really, really, really interesting that Billy Napier would do that interview if he had zero interest in being the LSU head coaching job. It it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. That's just my two cents. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. And from there, we will wrap with some other stuff in college football. Uh, Ohio State cruises, Georgia rolls, Florida, Clemson, that quirky, quirky, quirky game, and also Nebraska. I love Scott Frost, but it's starting to feel like the beginning of the end. I will be right back. All right, everybody. 
I am back. Final time today. Good to be back. Good to be back. Before we get to uh, the rest of college football, just a couple quick announcements. One, uh, first of all, our buddies at Manscaped will be back later this week. I will have some updates with them. Uh, waiting on a few products from Manscaped, but I am really excited to work with Manscaped going into the holiday season. If you have any products that you want, go to manscaped.com, use promo code Torres. Always do that. I will get you some full details later this week. Also, College Hoops coming up. Uh, I know I haven't talked a ton of college hoops. I know many of you know me for college hoops. Just want you to know, I have not forgotten how close the season is, and I am not ignoring college hoops. I am as fired up for college hoops as ever. Um, but just obviously with college football so much going on, college hoops does take a little bit of a back burner deal up until kind of uh, uh, really the next couple weeks. But I will tell you, over the next couple weeks, I will give my final four picks, my national championship picks. I am as fired up for college hoops as I have ever been. And I think we're going to have about as good of a season as we have had in a long time. I've talked about it all summer. But the one-time transfer rule, the extra year of eligibility, name image likeness has made college basketball absolutely fast coming into this year so many good teams from Texas to Kansas to Gonzaga UCLA Kentucky Duke North Carolina I think is going to be good Tennessee Alabama Arkansas Memphis is going to be fascinating I promise you we will talk plenty of college basketball on this show also get you a couple good guests throughout the next few months uh, next few weeks I should say Hunter Dickinson from Michigan will join me later this week hoping to get Kofi Coburn before the season and at some point we'll get the Eric Musselmans the Rick Barnes the Nate Oates the guys like that with that said let's wrap on some college football and interesting weekend uh, outside of the big stuff I have obviously hit on a lot of what I, I deem to be the big stuff but what I would also say is there was a lot of other stuff that happened so let's kind of rip through some of the things that happened on college football on this past Saturday First of all, let's start with probably the biggest game that I haven't talked about yet, Ohio State-Penn State. This game lost a little bit of luster because of what ha has happened to Penn State the last few weeks, but I thought it was a very interesting game. Final, final score, 33-24. Penn State put up a valiant effort, and in terms of takeaways, I think there's a couple. First of all, my rush to proclaim Ohio State the second-best team in college football may have been a little bit presumptuous. They may be the second-best team in the sport, but it's also a little early to tell. Georgia, we'll get to in a minute, is still the clear best team in college football. And when I pushed last week to lead the show last Monday, Ohio State is the definitive second-best team in college football. A lot of you accurately push back. Let's see and let's wait until they play somebody. They were coming off wins against Rutgers, Maryland, and Indiana, and it was a little bit presumptuous, and it may have been accurate by you guys. I give you guys credit for pushing back on me. I think there might have been something to it. Ohio State obviously won the game, but if you watched, they were never really... There was never really a moment where you felt like, okay, they stink, but there was never really a moment where they elevated their play in the moment. They do end up winning the game 33-24, but a couple things stand out. One... Uh, a lot of things went in their way. We'll get into those in a minute. Uh, but they had a, a fumble recovery for a touchdown. They had a Penn State touchdown. ruled. Uh, the player was ruled out of bounds. And so a lot of stuff went Ohio State's way. Late in the game, they had chances to put the game away, had to settle for field goals instead of touchdowns, allowed Penn State to stay in the game. And then finally, I think it was pretty obvious that they had not seen a team with the size, speed, and physicality of Penn State. The final stats would reflect one thing, but they finished with 466 yards of total offense, 305 yards passing, 161 yards rushing. It was a real grind early, especially against the run. 
And so when you start to look at Ohio State, when you start to figure out who they're going to play, whether it is Michigan State, whether it is Michigan, whether it is somebody from the Big Ten West in the Big Ten Championship game, it's not as though there is not a path to beating them. You just have to be able to probably score 30-plus points because they are so gifted offensively, but they are not unbeatable offensively the way that maybe even I thought about a week or so ago. Um, but they get the win, and that's all that ultimately matters with Ohio State. And it is worth noting that even on an off night, they do end up with 466 yards of total offense, nine yards per pass, and all that good stuff. But I do think the big thing that struck me, um, it was very clear that they have not seen a team with the size, speed, and physicality of Penn State. And that is something that is going to be noticeable going forward because they play two very physical, athletic teams in Michigan and Michigan State going forward, although none of us actually think Michigan's going to beat them. Real quick with Penn State. I don't know what to say. I, I just feel bad at this point. I mean, I just talked a ton about James Franklin a minute ago. I don't want to uh, relitigate this entire thing, but you feel bad because if Sean Clifford is healthy, obviously it completely changes the dynamic with uh, Penn State this entire season. They obviously would have taken care of Iowa based on what we've seen from Iowa the last few weeks. They obviously would have taken care of Illinois. We will never know, but now they're in a very precarious situation but they showed once again they are a tough out. They have probably been the second best team in the Big Ten over the last six, seven years since James Franklin has gotten there. They just can't get over the hump. They just can't get over the hump, and it was a game where they played about as perfectly as they could. They ended up with more first downs than Penn State, 11 of 16 on third downs, but they just could not make the plays when they needed to. They cannot run the ball at all against elite teams, and this is just kind of who they are. But I do feel bad. I do wonder what this game would have felt like, what it would have been like if both teams had been 7, or I guess Penn State would have technically been 7-0. and Ohio State would have been 6-1 uh, and coming into this game because they had to lose to Oregon State. But this just feels like the script with Penn State. They get really, really, really close. They just can't get that one play to get them over the hump. The fumble recovery for a touchdown for Ohio State. On the flip side, Penn State scores a touchdown, but it's ruled that the player stepped out of bounds before he caught the ball. You flip those two games, you flip those two scores, that's a 14-point swing. All of a sudden, Penn State has 27. All of a sudden, Ohio State has 26. It's a different ball game. And so you feel bad for Penn State. They can't get over the hump. Now we see how much they have to play for here at 5-3 and three with four games to go. And, of course, their coach doing all sorts of weird press conferences where he's not really denying that he's interested in other jobs but not really talking about it, all that good stuff. Really quickly, Georgia, Florida. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about Georgia at this point. How about my dogs? But 34-7 final score. And I think we all know what the, the, the topic is in this one. It is incredible how quickly this program can flip the switch and make you look stupid and make a one-possession game be a 3-4 possession game out of nowhere. It happened against Arkansas where Arkansas is kind of in the game for half a second. Then all of a sudden you look up, it's 24 to nothing. And the same thing happened with Georgia-Florida on Saturday. Georgia, 24 unanswered points in the second quarter of that game. Obviously took a massive lead into halftime, but they scored, how about this? They scored, four, of the 24 points, they scored 21 in the final 230 of that half of James Cook run. Turnover, pass to Kyrus Jackson. N'Kobe Dean uh, takes in a 50-yard interception return for a touchdown. And what I would just say is, look, um, every week we start to try and figure out who that contender is, who can potentially beat Georgia, what's their weakness. And I've been saying for weeks, they don't pass the ball well. Don't know if it matters. They At some point they're going to do that. 
they are so dominant, it is unbelievable. They are now, check this out, guys. They are now eight games through their season, and a couple things stand out. One, they are allowing 6.6 points per game. They've allowed 53 points the entire season. No one is even close to that. The closest is Cincinnati, which has allowed 114 points, more than double what Cincinnati or more than double what Georgia's allowed, and obviously against much inferior competition. On top of that, what I'll say is this: Look, man, we criticize Kirby Smart for an awful lot of stuff. This is the only team. This uh, go, go back. I criticize Alabama because I don't know what I'm getting from them quarter to quarter, half to half, minute to minute. Georgia has not taken a quarter off, a half off. A, they, they come to play every week, and I think there's something to be said about that and something to be appreciated about that as well. And they've just made a lot of teams look really bad. Like, I was thinking about this on Saturday night. I talked about it on my radio show, but think about Auburn. Auburn's awesome. Auburn 6-2. They won at LSU, broke that streak, took care of Ole Miss, done a lot of good stuff this year the Auburn Tigers have. They weren't even competitive against Georgia. They weren't even competitive against Georgia. Georgia won that game, by the way, on the Plains in a rivalry game, 34-10. to And that one was basically over uh, with about, you know, 10 minutes left in the third quarter as well. So credit to Georgia. There's not enough superlatives to talk about them. There's nothing really interesting or compelling to take out of it. Uh, but they're just a fascinating team. And they continue. I just give them so much credit because they show up every night, every game, ready to go. From Florida's perspective, you know, listen, I crushed Dan Mullen about two weeks ago after the LSU loss. I don't think there's anything to crush Dan Mullen about here. Georgia is a juggernaut. Georgia is a machine. Now, I will say there were some questions in the postgame press conference about uh, they asked Kirby Smart about recruiting, and he said it's all about the players. I wouldn't be anything without them. Dan Mullen, of course, said we're not focused on recruiting on game day. We're worried about beating Georgia. And so, obviously, Dan Mullen isn't really helping himself. But this is, again, a situation where it's just hard for me to criticize Florida in this game. I will also say we have been pushing to get Anthony Richardson in these games. Obviously did not matter because poor Anthony Richardson got killed out there. Uh, hope he's okay. Left the game with an injury, but 12 of 20 passing, two interceptions. Both of those interceptions were uh, turned directly into scores. And so Anthony Richardson, I do believe, has a chance to be a special player at Florida. But it wasn't going to happen against Georgia. Really quickly, you see the final of the Clemson game? How about those Clemson Tigers? Broke 20 points in a game against an FBS opponent. Incredible. Shout out to the Tigers. But I don't know if you watched this game, so check it out. Score was 24-20, to Clemson, Florida State. Last play of the game, this is what you need to know. The spread, and if you follow my weekly picks, the spread is Clemson is a 9.5-point favorite. So at that point, final play of the game, they are not covering the spread, okay? Got to win by more than 9.5 to cover the spread. The over-under in the game is 47.5. Do some quick math. The score is 24 to 20. That's 44 points, which means that the under is in play going into the final play of the game. What happens? Florida State gets the ball. They throw the ball all over the field, try to pick up some miracle play. It gets fumbled. Clemson returns it for a touchdown. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because Clemson wins, Clemson loses. But as professional legalized gambling becomes more prominent and always visit our partners at DraftKings.Sportsbook.com. As professional gambling, as, as legalized gambling becomes more prominent, you talk about an all-time bad beat. That was it. Because think about it. 
Imagine if you had Florida State, like I did, plus nine and a half, which means you just need them to lose by less than nine points, and you're good. They lose by eight, they lose by seven, you win the bet. They lose by six, they lose by five, they win, you win the bet. Well, I had Florida State plus nine and a half. I also had the under of 47 and a half. Both lost on the final play of the game. So you talk about an all-time bad beat. Please gamble responsibly. This is why I always tell you, gamble responsibly. That was an all-time bad beat as Clemson gets the win. But Dabo Sweeney, I'll give him credit. Those guys are still playing hard. I don't think they're very good. I don't know what they're going to do at the quarterback position because I don't believe that DJ is the answer. But I will give them credit. They keep playing hard. I just don't think they're very good. Now they go into a game this week against Louisville. Then they got my UConn Huskies and the big one against Wake Forest uh, on November 20th, which at this point they can only play spoiler. They cannot essentially win the, the, the division. They cannot win the conference. But they're sitting at 5-3. and three. They'll get to a bowl game. But I give Dabo Sweeney credit for continuing to have his guys fight. All right, there is one last topic I want to talk about, and let me just say this. If you guys listen to this show, you know, I don't normally talk about bad Big West team, Big Big Ten West teams on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're an Illinois football fan, got to find somewhere other than the Aaron Torres Pod to talk Illinois football. You a Northwestern fan? Not this year, baby. We ain't talking Northwestern on this show. But there was one result that came out of Saturday that I do want to discuss. It came in Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska got out to a 17-14 lead at halftime. Nebraska blew a second half lead. Nebraska lost to Purdue at home, final score 28-23. And I want to talk about it because with the loss, Nebraska falls to 3-6. and six. They still have three very challenging games left on their schedule. And this was the game that felt like the end of the Scott Frost era. Now, as best I can tell as I record here late afternoon, late evening on Sunday, Scott Frost is still the head coach. And maybe he's allowed to coach out the rest of the season. Maybe he's allowed to coach whatever. But this felt like the game where it's over for Scott Frost in Nebraska. If in year four, you cannot beat Purdue at home. If in year four, you are making the same mistakes with the same players that you were making in year one. If in year four, you could potentially fall to three and nine. Three and six right now with Ohio State, Iowa, and Wisconsin still on the schedule. It probably isn't getting turned around. And the fan base probably is not going to give you another year to make it happen. And so while it might not be official, Saturday felt like the end of the Scott Frost era. And let me just say, I'm really bummed out. And I'm really bummed out for a couple reasons. First of all, I'm bummed out. I've talked about it on this podcast before. I'm not a quote-unquote Nebraska fan. I've driven through Nebraska. I've driven through Lincoln. Great town. Great people. Love their Golden Corral. That was the one thing I remember about Lincoln. They kept telling me, you got to go to the Golden Corral. I was like, I want to go somewhere else. No, I'll go to the Golden Corral. But it's a great town, great people, great state. And when I was coming up as a college football fan, as a young, young, young child, Nebraska was what Alabama is now. First three years that I remember watching college football, first four years, Nebraska won three national titles. First college football memory that I have, I'm not kidding, Tommy Frazier against Florida in the Orange Bowl. And so I've always had a soft spot for Nebraska because I have seen them at their absolute peak. I have seen how great this program can be. I've seen the support that they have. And so if you're a 19, 20-year-old kid listening to this show saying, Torres, why do you care about Nebraska so much? Imagine 25 years from now, 
Alabama cannot get out of its own way. And then, oh, by the way, Alabama goes out and hires Greg McElroy or uh, Bryce Young or somebody of that caliber as the best young coach in college football, and even he can't figure it out at Nebraska. And that's essentially what you have with Scott Frost. And so that is what is so tough about this with Nebraska. We know the limitations of the Nebraska job in 2021, but it wasn't supposed to matter because Scott Frost was supposed to be the guy that rescued this program. Great star on the last great team, rising star in coaching. We all know the resume takes Central Florida from winless in one year. Two years later, they're undefeated. They beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. And we can criticize the hire now. We can tear it apart now. It was about as consensus of a can't-miss hire as I have ever seen since I started covering college football, okay? Since I have covered college football in any form or fashion, there are only two hires that I believe were unanimous cannot miss hires and ironically both of them have kind of missed the first was Jim Harbaugh at Michigan second was Scott Frost at Nebraska maybe Nick Saban I know Nick Saban was the same way back in 2007 I was not covering uh, college football in any way back then but this was about as safe of a bet as you could get elite player at the program he understood what the program was about and I think it's worth noting that um, he turned down other great jobs to come to Nebraska that was part of it too He could have gone to Florida. He had the opportunity to get the job that now is Dan Mullins. Instead, he wanted to come home to Nebraska. He wanted to fix this thing. He wanted to make it right. He wanted to be the guy to to do it. And the fact that it's year four and he can't get over the hump, it's just so tough because he knows what this school means to the state. He knows what it means to the community. He knows the history. He knows about the famous walk-on program. He knows about the development and all the things that go on in Nebraska. And I will say, it feels like if he can't get it done at Nebraska, I don't know who will. In terms of specifics, what I would say is this circumstance with Scott Frost, and again, I'm talking about him as if he's been fired. He hasn't been yet, but he will be. It's frustrating for two very specific reasons. The first one is, I believe that not only did I want to make, it, not only did I want it to work, I feel like he had the support of everybody, right? And 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 that's part of this in college football. You have these fan bases. Some of them are angry. Some of them are mean. Some of them don't support a coach. Uh, you go back the the most famous one in recent memory, Charlie Strong at Texas. Half the fan base didn't want the guy. The guy the the second the guy was hired, and that put him so far behind the eight ball. Everybody supported Scott Frost at Nebraska. Again, uh, son of Nebraska, uh, grew up in Nebraska, won a national championship there. And the Nebraska fan base, I feel like, has done everything they can to back this guy and support this guy and show him that they love him and they want him to succeed. This is not a guy getting hired day one and he's already behind the eight ball with the fan base. The fan base wanted him to succeed more than anybody. And I'll take it a step further. I think the administration wanted him to succeed more than anybody. I'll say this about the administration. I saw an interview with their AD, Trev Alberts, another former player. Uh, One of the Barstool guys interviewed the two of them about three weeks ago before the Michigan game. It seemed like they had a great relationship. It seemed like Trev Alberts, as much as anybody, wanted Scott Frost to succeed, and it just hasn't happened. What I would also say is the other frustrating thing about this is two things. One, Nebraska fans wanted it to succeed. And the other thing is, you can't say that Scott Frost hasn't had the time. Like, that's, that's, that to me is the most disappointing thing. Maybe frustrating is not the right word. Maybe disappointing. Is there are all sorts of coaching hirings and firings 
that seem unjustified. I mean, even Coach O, you could he the program's going in the wrong direction, zero doubt. But you can argue two years after a national championship, you shouldn't be firing the guy. You know, Matt Wells at Texas Tech, uh, I don't think he's the guy there, but he was 5-3 and three and you fire him going into the Oklahoma game. Those are, those are firings that while I understood each, you can also say that they were a little bit rushed, that the guy didn't have enough time. You can make the argument that the guy deserved more time. It's going to be really hard when this ends with, for Scott Frost, if it ends, and I think it will, unless they run the table here somehow, if they beat Ohio State somehow, whatever. If it ends the way that I think it's going to, it's going to be frustrating because you can't argue that Scott Frost didn't have enough time. And beyond that, you can't argue that this all wasn't self-inflicted. Some guys take a bad loss, two bad losses. Some guys have a million injuries. Scott Frost's problem are self-inflicted. Scott Frost's problem is that Adrian Martinez was his first great recruit, and he has stuck with him through thick and thin. I talked about it back in week zero after the Illinois game. I said, Scott Frost is not going to get fired because of NCAA issues. He's not going to be fired because of this. He's not going to be fired because of that. He is going to be fired because in the transfer portal era, where you can go out and you can get immediate help anywhere you need help. Look at Michigan State. Their entire team is transfers. They did not go get a transfer quarterback to at least compete with Adrian Martinez. And I don't know if there's some big top secret quiet story that we don't know about yet. I don't know why Scott Frost is so loyal to this kid. And look, in some ways it's great, right? It's great that you're loyal. It's great that you want him to succeed. It's great. But at a certain point, you are who you are. And Adrian Martinez is a guy that throughout his history as a football player, he has a very specific history that at the worst possible times, he is going to make the worst possible decisions and it is going to cost you. This year is no different. He threw four touchdowns on uh, four interceptions on Saturday, 12 touchdowns, seven interceptions on the season. And that is a metaphor, right? If there is one game that is going to cost you your job, it might as well be the game where Adrian Martinez has essentially done what he has done throughout his career, which is throw a crap ton of interceptions. Last year, four touchdowns, three interceptions. Year before in 2019, 10 touchdowns, nine interceptions. And I'm not saying you got to have Bryce Young at quarterback. I'm not saying you got to have DJ or Spencer Rattler or one of those guys. What I am saying is quarterback should be no different than any other position and there should be competition there. And it was clear after year two that he was not going to be the guy that you wanted him to be and you at least had to bring in other people to compete for the job and to challenge him for the job. The fact that you didn't bring in anybody when the obituary is written on Scott Frost's time at Nebraska, that's what it's going to come down to. He had a chance to replace Adrian Martinez. He had a chance to go in the transfer portal. He had a chance to recruit a high school player, and he either never did or he never actually put that guy in the game. I was kind of reading some commentary. You can complain about a lot of things, but the fact that Scott Frost kept rolling this guy out there, Adrian Martinez, on Saturday, four interceptions when you have a backup quarterback is inexcusable. And so I feel bad for Scott Frost, but at the end of the day, when he is ultimately let go, he is going to have nobody to blame but himself, and it's because he was too stubborn to get rid of Adrian Martinez. Now, in the bigger picture, what I would say is this is kind of a very scary time for Nebraska, and it's for the same reason I talked about with Michigan a few minutes ago. You can say a lot about Michigan, but what I'll tell you about Michigan, at least Harbaugh's winning 10 games. He might not beat Ohio State or Michigan State, but at least he's beaten Rutgers, Maryland, Northwestern, those kind of, Nebraska isn't even beating those guys. And so it's going to be so interesting to me, where do you go next? You've tried everything. You tried 
the guy from the NFL and Bill Callahan. You tried the native son in Scott Frost. You tried the successful head coach somewhere else in Mike Riley. Nothing has worked. And so if this job opens, this isn't USC where there's an obvious four, five, six candidates. There isn't uh, four, five, six obvious candidates like at LSU. I don't know who wants this job and who takes this job. I mean, the only name that even has come up in recent weeks is Mark Stoops. And I'm telling you, Mark Stoops ain't leaving Kentucky to go to, uh, he ain't leaving Kentucky to go to Nebraska, which right now is a train wreck of a program. And so it's a very precarious situation. I feel bad for Nebraska fans. I'm rooting for you. I hope you get the right coach. And I'm not one of those guys, by the way, that believes that Nebraska can never be great in modern college football. I think they certainly have obstacles. But it was just two weeks ago, Iowa was in the top five nationally. Wisconsin has been on the brink of the playoff. If you get the right coach, by the way, Notre Dame, I say it all the time. There's no reason that Notre Dame, a small Irish Catholic school in Indiana, should be good, but they got the right head coach. And so I believe that Nebraska can be relevant in the same way that I believe that there's probably 25, 30 teams that can be relevant in modern college football. But I don't know who that coach is. I don't know what the answer is. And look, I'm not going to lie. I still kind of hope that Nebraska is able to to rip off, uh, you know, go go two and three down the stretch, maybe beat Wisconsin, beat Iowa, and convince the, 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 the administration that Scott Frost is the guy. I would love to see him with someone other than Adrian Martinez because I think he can win, but it's his own fault that he hasn't pulled Adrian Martinez. So listen, I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to talk about it too much. But let me just say that, um, like I said, Saturday felt like the end for Scott Frost. It felt like that was the one that there is no coming back from. You can lose to Michigan. You can lose to Oklahoma. You can even lose to Michigan State with the season that you're having. But when you lose to Minnesota two weeks ago, then go into a bye, come out of a bye, and lose to Purdue at home, I just don't think that's something that you come back from. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aritora Sports Podcast. Fun episode. I told you it'd be fun, right? Told you, Ted Lasso. Told you, Ted Lasso, this would be fun. Let's get out of here. Before we do, I want to remind everybody, make sure you're subscribed to Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, Podcast Addict App, Spotify, what else? Amazon Music, Google Music, all that good stuff. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Big shout out. A few of you have actually put in ratings the last few weeks. So thank you, ratings and reviews. Thank you for those of you who have done that. Uh, if you're not already, make sure you're checking out AaronTorresOnline.com where I do all my writing, all my all that good stuff. Make sure you're following the college football betting show with Aaron Torres. A lot of good stuff there. And also, uh, that's really it. With Manscaped, will be back soon. We're going to have a busy week on the show. But I think it's time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.